0: Give it your all.
1: We will drink the one
0: to the comb is destroyed. Against the girls, and then the cry. the dice until we fly. And dance with Jack on the shadows. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of a Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin, and today we're jumping into Chapter 48 Following the Craft. This is a point of view switch over to Egwene, uh Nynaeve and Elaine, but from Elaine, uh, from Egwene's perspective, and they are on the darter that they got on, I believe, in Aringil, and are still there, <laughs> and uh, or on in the darter, I should say, and Egwene and Nynaeve had had a lot of. Stomach problems, <laughs> motion sickness and the like, where they're constantly throwing up left and right and center because the darter goes really fast, but also rolls on the waves a bit. Egwene um, tries to avoid thinking about it by thinking about a bunch of other things, things that are sturdy, not things that are fluttering or moving. And she had given her name to the captain, Captain Can, um, with his long face. Um, it had given her name as Mistress Jocelyn. Um, and basically hiding her identity alongside Elaine and Nynaeves, obviously. Um, since they are going to... Tear, and Tyr doesn't have a very good... I guess, relations with um, Tarvalon and Aes Sedai, I guess. Like Magic's Outlawed, all, all the usual stuff you expect from people who are just like, they're very wary of Aes Sedai. So being openly Aes Sedai is not illegal per se, but it is highly frowned upon, and they're not allowed to channel. How they would know they're channeling, I have no idea. Um, They probably play it by ear. So all the sailors running around, and the captain's like, "Hey, we're just pulling into the port." and he's like, "All right, good, good, good um now, on this trip, she had been trying to explore Talronrioad a bit, and she didn't feel like it really revealed very much um. She gets glimpses of Rand, Matter Perrin until I run Riyad, but she gets more of them, it seems, in her dreams without using the Tirongreal ring that she has. But none of it makes any sense. And she ignores the Shan Shan. But she he, she sees these things like nightmares of a white cloak putting Master Luhan in the middle of a huge tooth trap for bait. Why should Perrin have a falcon on his shoulder? And what was important about him choosing between the axe he wore now and a blacksmith's hammer? What did it mean that Matt was dicing with the Dark One? And why did he keep shouting, I am coming! And why did she think, in the dream, he was shouting at her? And Rand. He had been sneaking through utter darkness towards Kalindor, while all around him six men and five women walked, some hunting him and some ignoring him some trying to guide him towards the shining crystal sword, and some trying to stop him from reaching it, appearing not to know where he was or only to see him in flashes. One of the men had eyes aflame, and he wanted Rand dead with a desperation he could nearly taste. She thought she knew him, Baal But who were the others? Rand in that dry, dusty chamber again, with those small creatures settling into his skin, ran confronting a horde of Shan, Shan ran confronting her and the women with her, and one of them was a Shan, Shan. So, these are things that, for veteran readers, even if you didn't remember this passage, these will sound familiar to you um, mm-hmm. from certain instances in the story. Uh, if you are new... And a beginner reader or you've read through it and you didn't really pick it up that like it was even here dreams in the wheel of time have a tendency to be more than just basic useless information they, te- they typically have something uh, attached to them that makes value to the story in some shape or form Sometimes it's so blurred and like what it actually means. Like the meaning is so hidden that you can't really just, this is what this means. Um, It's not difficult when you have read it, the series, but occasionally you just, you read it and then it kind of like, you, you forget to store it away in your mind because I mean, it's, it's a massive series. You can't store every little detail like, the most knowledgeable person, even Robert Jordan himself, the author, can forget things that he himself put in his own work. So everybody else reading it, it's fair and understandable to be like, yeah, you can't remember everything. But when you reread it again and you like take notes and you go a little bit at a slower pace, you can typically pick up on certain things. Now, if you're new these things could mean something or they could not mean something because sometimes there's a little bit mixed in, in both uh usually they mean more in one area than another so i would personally be like hey you know tuck it away for later see what might come of it at some point point," and Hopefully you will be at least pleasantly surprised. I guess is be the easiest way to say it. Like, yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised that I found X, Y, and Z. Um, I remember this little detail from you know book three, three quarters of the way through, um, and then you're like in like book ten or something, and you're like, oh, that's what that means. You know, just something stringing about. Sometimes is a little bit more difficult to to remember because it's such a small thing. But I mean, some of these you kind of already know, um, like the one about Perrin. Um, with the Falcon. But the important part is, is that even if the, the reader is aware of some of these, like maybe, you know, these things through and through, like it's nothing new under the sun. The downside is that while you might know what's going on, the character does not. So, I like to refer to this and it probably has a different name, but I refer to it as the author meta that basically it's basically the author is telling the reader a lot of important information. But then typically what happens is that the reader will go on and say, well, why are they doing this? That's stupid. They should know this is happening when they don't, they can't. It's not possible because Characters are separated. They don't have a hive mind. It's not like when one one character learns something, another character picks it up and then runs with it. That's not how it works. This isn't like D&D where the players know everything and the characters know what the players know. That's poor D&D. But it's not the meta gaming aspect. It's just the author's meta because the author is explaining to us things that we can know because we've seen up to this point all this information And we can make a a judgment call based on that. But that's not necessarily how it works for characters. Characters are still limited on their knowledge. One person knows this. Another person doesn't know the same information. So in this case, Egwene doesn't know what this means. She doesn't even know if it's real. and Some of it might not be. Some of it might be. So we kind of have to... Be a little gracious in how <laughs> how they are understanding things because, of course, it's the same thing when you're watching a, like a horror film and they're walking into a house. You're like, no, don't do it. Stop going in there. You're going to get killed. He's going to stab you. Blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, the usual stuff you'd expect. So that would be a meta, but obviously on a TV. It's already pre-recorded. They can't hear you. Like, even if you're watching a football game, it's live. They still can't hear you they have hundreds of thousands of people in a stadium screaming yelling whatever all at the same time they're not going to hear you on your tv screen like <laughs> my dad does that and it drives me nuts because i'm like they can't hear you we even got him a little foam brick so he could throw it at the tv when he's upset it's actually quite entertaining but that was all just a little side path just a explain how the story works because Robert Jordan wrote a little bit more of an advanced style than I've seen some other authors write. So it's not super common and people sometimes have a hard time with it, but just want to let you know that we'll move on from there. And then a essentially just upset that you can't think of like, she's trying to focus on the black odd. She's so focused on the black odd that everything else is kind of like this crazy like this is a loopy doopy dream none of this makes any sense what's going on but because she's still contemplating all what's going on she tells captain Cannon that uh he needs to, to or that she's going to i should say contact mistress miriam and mistress carla they really like using wise and their names like Joslyn has a Y, Mariam has a Y, and Carla has a Y. Or Carryla, Carryla, I guess. It it's Carla with a Y between the R and the L. It's it's a weird it's a weird name, Carryla. It's a C, not a K. It, I I don't even know. Um. But he's like, hey, I've already told them. You know, your animals will be on the docks as soon as my men can rig a boom. And he sounds like he's ready to get them off of his boat. And I mean, I personally can't blame him for one. He's got three women and two of them are just constantly throwing up, or as he calls it, sick up. Um, And it's got like this corkscrewing, like it's one side to the other side, one side to the other side. It's a very small vessel that's made for speed as opposed to a larger vessel that's made for comfort and massive cargo. But either way, he seems to be happy about this, which she doesn't necessarily like the fact that he's ready to be rid of them. So she's almost like, I'm going to take my time just to annoy him. I'm like, of course she would, because for whatever reason, you'd rather somebody else be uncomfortable than get on dry land where you're not throwing up every five seconds. It's... The most petty of petty things, but we can't really expect much less from Egwene, right? Like she's, she's showing her pettiness is pretty up there. And Nynaeve is historically pretty petty as well, but Nynaeve typically is right in those situations. She's older. She has more wisdom, pun intended. Um, And she's seen a thing or two a little bit more than Egwene has, but we'll get more on that later because we're going to have a lot more of that later. So, Nynaeve and Elaine eventually appear from the ladder to the cabins, with their bundles, saddlebags, and all that stuff. With Elaine about as packed as Nynaeve, but when Nynaeve sees Egwene watching, she pushes herself away from the daughter heir, and, you know, walks unaided the rest of the way, because, you know, six stomach and all that jazz. Um, The crew take care of the horses and the goes down to get her own stuff. And by the time she comes back up, Mist is already on the dock. And Elaine's roan is dangling. And there's a canvas laying halfway there. Which is weird because I figured the docks would have the booms. But sometimes it's the actual ships have the booms. So from Captain Kanan's particular Description. It makes it sound like his guys are going to rig a boom, aka build a boom on his on his uh, craft. But typically, you'd expect um, the docks themselves to have a boom. just Just for the just for the reason because lots of cargo. If it's wrapped in a net, they can just grab the net, pull it all up. Or if they have to, they can pick it up, put it on like a sling, kind of like what they horses have. And just lift it out so much easier if it's a big piece. And that would be typical, you'd expect for trade at some dock of a major city or even of smaller cities. Why not have a boom? There's no reason not to. So it's kind of hard to tell, but it, it leans me towards their building one on the ship because it's not uncommon for ships to have them. It's usually something they put together and then take apart. But I I don't know which one they're actually running with. But now Egwene's going to look at the city of Tyr itself and the country of Tyr. And we're going to get a little bit of a description to it. Um, We've done this with Camelin, We've done this with Tarvalon. Pretty sure we did it for uh, Shinar and Falma as well. For what little information we get for every place this one's only like basically three paragraphs stone warehouses backed the long docks themselves and there seems to be a great many ships large and small alongside the docks or anchored in the river hastily she avoided looking at the ships Tyr had been built on a flat land with barely a bump down muddy dirt streets between the warehouses she could see houses and inns and taverns of wood and stone their roofs of slate and tile had oddly shaped corners and some rose to a point beyond these she could make out a high wall of dark gray stone and behind it the tops of towers with balconies high around them and white domed palaces the domes had a squared shape to them and the tower tops looked pointed, like some of the roofs outside the wall. All in all, Tyr was easily as big as Camelin or Tarvalon, and if not so beautiful as either, it was still one of the great cities. Yet she found it hard to look at anything but the Stone of Tyr. She had heard, st- heard of it in stories, heard that it was the greatest fortress in the world and the oldest, the first built after the breaking of the world, yet nothing had prepared her for the sight. At first she thought it was a huge grey stone hill or a small barren mountain covering hundreds of hides. Its length stretching from the Aranen west, through the wall and into the city, even after she saw the huge banner flapping from its greatest height, three white crescent moons slanting across the field half red half gold a banner waving at least 300 paces above the river yet large enough to be clearly seen at that height even after she made out battlements and towers it was difficult to believe the stone of tear had been built rather than carved out of a mountain already there made with a power elaine murmured she was staring at the stone too Flows of earth woven to draw stone from the ground, air to bring it from every corner of the world, and earth and fire to make it all in one piece, without seam or joint or mortar. Attawan Sedai says the tower could not do it today. Strange, given how the High Lord feels concerning the power now. Now, I would like to point out a couple of things there are a couple of viewpoints on what the style is. Some of them make sense, but you have to remember that every civilization has a mix mash of culture, ethnicity, and whatnot to compile into a particular place. So in this case, tyrants, the people of Tyr have kind of a almost Spanish like Spanish Inquisition, like conical helmets, pointed beards, kind of an ethnical look appearance. But the actual cultural buildings and some other things are kind of like Vietnamese in time, like almost like a, a pagoda is kind of slightly curved with the ends of the tips pointing back up. Like there's a little mixture. And then you get the kind of the Asian little platform shoes that we'll see later on. There's a little bit of A little bit of little this, a little bit of that kind of mixed together, which is how Robert Jordan intentionally designed them, because he likes to take multiple pieces of different civilizations and mesh them together. Not necessarily in the way that some might expect, like in having a a very uh, mixed racially population in terms of the actual citizens of said town. There are always going to be merchants, there's always going to be traders, there's always going to be people who are visiting or people who move from another city to another but it's not going to be like very diverse in terms of the actual population um, for whatever reason which I would lean more towards the historicity uh, argument is they are pretty homogenous to what they were created as, in terms of as as a country or a civilization. That's just how they did it. I mean, historically, that's how mankind has done it. And little by little, it seems like it's slowly moving towards such a a trade-heavy system that people are moving from one town to another town here and there. But we're going to see, even in this uh, particular chapter why it's it's so rare to see people of a particular different country origin but that being said tyrants are very spanish in terms of ethnicity very vietnamese in terms of building and architecture and culture um and a little bit of asian variety when it comes to their shoe style because of the, the conditions of the city which will come up and notice this in here soon um but I believe they also have a different uh, cultural like trend, I guess, or whatever style for their clothes. So their clothes, their architecture, and their ethnicity are like three different things. Because that's basically how Robert Jordan took them all. Like the Aiel are redhead Irish people that are like super tall, have high stamina, deadly warriors, but they're like nomads in a wasteland desert with some interesting choices of nomadic gear and weaponry and stuff like he it's a it's a mixture i think it was like um shaka zulu type uh zulu warfare with like the what is it the bued? i always mess up their name the what did it put in i'm not even gonna be able to say it properly um Mixed with the Irish, like it's like three, four different things they slam together to make the IEL. So that's just how they are. I can't tell you anything else because that's just I, I don't make the rules. <laughs> um, but Atuan die. One of the Ise in the tower probably a brown telling about the history of the tower and everything. And I do find it interesting that flows of earth woven in to draw stone from the ground, air to bring it from every corner of the world and earth and fire to make it all into one piece. Women, this would be the point after the breaking where men kind of don't exist channelers and men are the ones who excel in earth and fire. Which makes it even more amazing that the women pulled it off. So kudos to them for making a pretty amazing structure and making it without seams, no joints, nothing. Like they they welded everything together. Like what you'd expect maybe from Avatar The Last Airbender where they have the earthbenders putting everything together and then just using their bending skills to make it basically seamless is essentially more or less what would have happened minus the ease, obviously, um, because women, nice to die, Basically are really good at air and water. Men are really good at earth and fire, and then both have their ability in spirit. So it's, it's a quite the achievement. It's definitely quite the achievement. So, and he was like, well, I guess things that we shouldn't mention out loud. And Elaine's kind of like indignant, but also agreement because she's like, well, I, I did speak quietly about it. But the daughter and Egwene notices that the, the daughter heir agrees with Naive too often and too readily to suit her. And I'm like, well, if she's right, she's right. Like, you're literally being the most antagonistic person in the relationship between you and Nynaeve that you're just upset that Nynaeve either is right or she might be perceived as right or that she gets her way too much or whatever. And we've gone over this so many times in the previous chapters and whatnot, even in the previous books, but Egwene really wants to get out from underneath Nynaeve's thumb in terms of authority or whatever. But here's the thing. Egwene's, like, 16, 17 years old, whatever. Like, she's young. is like, mid-20s. Like, I think she's, like, anywhere between 22 and 25, somewhere in there. And it's like, okay, Nynaeve has her little quirks. She has her temper. She has those kind of things. But she's not stupid. I mean, she can be stubborn, but that's just an Emmons Field thing, like. Two Rivers, in general, is heavily, heavily stubborn. And we can see that from Nynaeve and Egwene's actions towards each other. But out of the two, Nynaeve's slightly more reasonable. And out of the two, Egwene is much, much, much more annoying. Although, I gotta say, Elaine really wins herself some brownie points by the end of the chapter. And if you know, you know. If you don't, you're about to find out in this in this episode, so... But even Gwen's like, well, she only agrees when Nynaeva is right, and she has to admit it to herself very grudgingly. And it's like, really grow up, which is what she claims she is, but um but at least Egwene acknowledges that, you know, any woman who wear the ring of the Aes Sedai, or is even slightly associated with Tarvalon, knowingly associated, would be watched here. So, that's a little bit of information that we technically already know, but it, it kind of fills it in a bit more of saying the High Lords of tier aren't very comfortable or enjoy the fact that I I even exists, let alone wanting them in their territory. They want them to get in and get out as quickly as possible, and that's all there is to it. So, we now have them on the docks in tear and they're noticing these smells of fish because tier is very much a fisher fisherman centric type economy like fish are the pun intended bread and butter of the food economy so it's not exactly abnormal to see as much fish as they do and there's bright red deep blue brilliant yellow stripes splotches different colors some of the sp- some of the fish she's never seen her mostly because you know you're on the ocean you're not exactly expecting not freshwater like you're you wouldn't expect a freshwater fish from a lake up north down south in an ocean like that would be just kind of silly but they notice all this type of stuff I'm not gonna go into it too much because it's extra details and. You should definitely be reading this anyway. So it is what it is. But Egwene lowers her voice for Elaine. and She's like, you know, Carla, remember why you're you are Carla. And she doesn't want Nynaeve to hear the admission. But her face didn't change when she heard. But Egwene could feel satisfaction radiating from her like heat from a cook stove. So Nynaeve's black stallions were lowered to the docks. And basically the, the sailors had carried their uh, tackle off the ship and simply dumped it on the wet stone of the dock and then Eve looks at the horses and opens her mouth because obviously she wants them to make their animal saddles and everything put together and all that jazz but you know she kind of closes her mouth a little tight lift like she's she's trying to hold back which you can at least grant her she's trying even if it's like she's sticking her thumb in a hornet's nest or something like that so she gives her braid one hard tug, and then, you know, the sling before the sling's even, like, out of the way, and she starts putting her saddle blanket on and, you know, get her high-cantled saddle on top of it. She doesn't even look at the other women. But Egoyen doesn't want to really ride because, you know, moving ships, motion sickness, doesn't really work that great with a horse because a horse still will bounce you around like a sack of potatoes but she takes a look at the muddy streets and then she's like, okay, I'm going to ride the horse. But then she gets on the horse and she's like, I really don't want to ride the horse. But then she looks at the muddy streets and she's like, okay, I'm going to ride the horse. And we get these little bits of information about it where basically her shoes are sturdy, but she doesn't want to have to clean the mud off of them or have to hold her skirts up as she walked, that kind of stuff. Um, And there's some extra needlework that Aline had done For them to basically take their dresses and make them, uh, I believe the the divided dresses like that you use for riding. So basically they're like giant pants, I guess. But when they're walking normally, it looks kind of like a dress. It's just the dress would go around, like instead of going completely around both legs, it would cut around each individual leg. But in a way that is essentially pants, but while it still looks and has the appearance of a dress. Um, I guess it's kind of like. One of those. It's like a half shorts. Half skirt. Like a skirt. It's called skirt, I think. And you know. It looks like a skirt. But it's actually shorts underneath. It's, it's roughly the same concept. But with obviously the dress layout. So naive, you know. Pales when she gets into her saddle. And her horse kind of decides to you know. Get a little frisky. But feel like we need to locate Leandra and the others without having to worry about them knowing that we're asking after them and they got to know we're coming. So at least someone is, but I would like them not to know we're here until it's too late for them. I got to say, I don't know any way to really do this at least yet, but do you guys have any suggestions? And Elaine's like, oh, let's just get a thief taker. And they're like, what? Like, like her in? And Huron's in the service of the king, but wouldn't any thief-takers here basically just serve the high lords? And Elaine's like, well, yeah. And Elaine's like, oh, I really wish I had her stomach. I was like, yes, they would, but thief-takers are not like queen's guards or the tyrant defenders of the stone. They serve the ruler, but people who have been robbed sometimes pay them to retrieve what was stolen, and they also sometimes take money to find people. At least in Camelon they do. I can't think it was any different here than in Tyr. And Egwene's like, well, then we take rooms at an inn and ask the innkeeper to find us the Thief Taker. But Nynaeve's like, nope, nope, we don't want an inn. And she kind of gives her reason, but she moderates her voice a little bit. She's like, "Leandrin at least knows us. And we have to assume the others do as well. They're going to definitely be watching the inns for whoever followed the trail they sprinkled behind them. I want to spring their trap in their faces, but not while we're inside of it. let us We're not going to stay at an inn. Now keep in mind, this is, ironically, two forces. You've got Egwene and Aniv at it again. Egwene, the innkeeper daughter, wants to go to a place that she would f- probably find familiar. An inn, but it's also the most common place that when you're traveling you go to. The inn. But Egwene doesn't want to ask, like, why not an inn? But Elaine's like, oh, fine, I'll ask. Where are we going then? If I make myself known, I could, and anybody would actually believe it, and these clothes with no escort, we'd be welcomed by the most noble houses, and most likely the stone itself. We're pretty good relations between Camelot and Tear, but there'd be no keeping it quiet. The entire city would know before nightfall, and I can't think of anywhere except an inn. Unless you mean to go out on a farm in the country, but we will never find them in the country. I'm like, well, staying in the country doesn't mean you're like just sitting in the country. Like, you'd still go in the town and everything. But Nynaeve looks at Egwene and is just like, I'll know it when I see it. And Elaine's like, what? And he looks at Nynaeve and Egwene, Nynaeve and Egwene, Nynaeve and Egwene. And they're kind of just staring each other down. And then she makes this point where she's like, Do not cut off your ears because you do not like your earrings. Which, to be fair, is exactly what they're doing. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face kind of thing. So there's not a whole lot of people out. Um, The odor of fish, the shops around are just kind of bleak and nowheres are out. Seems just like people are giving up on stuff. Like it's it's just not in a good in a good way. The economy's kind of looking like it's a little little suffering. But we're gonna go now into how the style of dress is. The men wore baggy breeches, usually tied at the ankle. Only a handful wore coats, long dark garments that fit arms and chest tightly. Then became looser below the waist there were more men in low shoes than in boots but most went barefoot in the mud a good many wore no coat or shirt at all and had their breeches held up by a broad sash sometimes colored and often dirty some had wide conical straw hats on their heads and a few cloth caps that sagged down one side of the face the women's dresses had high necks right up to their chins and hems that stopped at the ankle many had short aprons and pale colors sometimes two or three each smaller than the one beneath it and most wore the same straw hats as the men but dyed to complement the aprons it was on a woman that she first saw how those who wore shoes dealt with the mud. The woman had small wooden platforms tied to the soles of her shoes. Lifting them two hands out of the mud, she walked along as if her feet were planted firmly on the ground. Egwene saw others wearing platforms after that, men as well as women. Some of the women went barefoot, but not as many as the men. So the thing about this whole uh, shoes thing is like they're like platforms. So it's not like you're barefoot. You take your shoes off, put them on platforms and walk. It's you take the shoe and put it onto the platform and then tie the platform and the shoe to your foot. And then you use that to walk through the mud. The way I visualize it and it could be wrong. there's, There's a couple ways you could do it. There's one where there's like a T a platform where you got your flat where your foot is and then you got the this long platform uh, up and down in the middle, almost like a mini stilt, I guess. The other form, which is probably more accurate, although it's difficult to do with shoes, um, would be like the traditional Japanese style where it's like a platform with two small um, down up and down uh, platform things or they basically help you balance a little bit easier. But they're not gonna help you too much with the mud. That's just like the Jap the traditional Japanese uh style in terms of just walking in general, like sandals. So it makes me lean slightly more towards the T platform shoes, but your imagination kind of understand it based off of how it's described. But a go ahead and wonder what. Shops have these platforms, but Naive suddenly turns her horse down an alleyway between a long, narrow, two story house and a stone walled potter shop. But Egwene and Elaine just look at each other and then they just kind of shrug and they follow. But Egwene doesn't know where Naive's going or why, and she meant to, to give her an earful because of it. But she didn't want to become separate either. Eventually, the alley just all of a sudden, lets out into a small yard behind the house, fenced in by the buildings around it. Nanny has already dismounted and tied her reins to a fig tree. But the s- stallion can't reach the green things sprouting in a vegetable patch that took up half the yard. But a line of stones just made him make a path kind of towards the back door. Nani just walks up to it and knocks. And the grain's like, "What? Why are we stopping here?" And Nani's like, "Don't you see the herbs in front windows? Like, are you stupid?" <laughs> And Elaine's like, herbs? And Egwene's like, oh, it's a wisdom. So she gets down from her saddle and ties Miss next to Nynaeve's black. And is like, well, Gaideen is no good name for a horse. So that's the name that Nynaeve had given her horse, Gaideen. We know why she named her horse that way. But... It's funny because she's like, does she think I don't know who she means it for? I'm like, everybody knows who she means it for. Everybody. People who don't know are like, oh, she named her horse Kenny. Oh, it's Lan. <laughs> it's like people who don't even know who Lan is know it's for Lan. Like, that's how common knowledge it is, obviously. But she points out to Elaine, like, now found herself a wisdom or a seeker or whatever they call it here. But the door is open to a woman who just has it just wide enough to be kind of suspiciously looking out at them. And Egwene's like, oh, she looks kind of stout. But when the woman opens the door the rest of the way, she's well padded. But the way she moves is more related to the, to the muscle, not so much fat. And from Egwene's perspective, she looks about as strong as Mistress Lujan. And some in the Emmons field claim Alsbet Lujan was almost as strong as her husband. Not true, but it's not that far off. The woman's like, can I help you? And her accent's the same as the Amaralyn's, because obviously Swan Sanchez from Tyr. Tyrants have the same accent. Shocking, I know. But her gray hair's arranged in thick curls that hung down the side of her head, and three aprons were shades green, each slightly darker than the one below, but even the topmost pale. It's like which one of you guys needs me? And then he was like, oh, I do, and I need something for a queasy stomach, but maybe one of my companions does as well, unless we have come to the wrong place. And the woman's like, Well, you're not tyrant. I'm like, points for observation. And he's like, I should have known that by your clothes before you spoke. I'm called Mother Gwenna. I am also called the wise woman, but I'm old enough not to trust that to a caulk in a seam. You come and I will give you something for your stomach. And she's got this little neat kitchen not very large there's no fire on the stone hearth but stove added its own heat My mother guana is just kind of ignoring everything dishes lined up on the mantles it's it's a pretty neat place um it's, i mean it's her home possibly as well as a type of a shop i don't know if she would sell herbs and medicines on like a storefront thing or if people just show up at her house and like, Hey, I need to buy this from you. And then she just gives it to them. They give her money and then they move on. I don't know. But as mother Gwena's closing the door and going to the kitchen, their cupboards, and he was like, well, what, what going to give me chain leaf or blue ort? And mother Gwena's like, well, if I had either of them, I would, but I have no time to glean as of late. So I'll give you a brew of marsh white leaves. And he was like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, well, it works basically like chain leaf, but it has the taste that people don't really care for. So the big woman, you know, sprinkles the dry leaves and broken leaves into the uh, blue teapot and carried over the fireplace to add hot water. It's like, oh, you know the craft then? Sit. And then they're just like, man, hey, no, sit and we'll talk. Which one of you has the other stomach? And Egwene's like, I'm fine. Obviously lying out of her teeth. She's not obviously fine. We've we've spent half this chapter so far about her with her own stomach problems and motion sickness, and Elaine's like, "Oh, I'm good too," but a little bit like, "Just take the stupid medicine. Just do it." Well, Lady's like, "Uh." She's got gray hair. She's pouring out a cup of dark liquid for Nynaeve. She's like, "I made enough for two, but marsh white tea keeps longer than salted fish, which, if you don't know, is a long time. And it works better the longer it sits, but it grows more bitter. So it makes it a race between how much you need your stomach settled and what your tongue can stand. So drink it. Yeah, see, it's not gonna, it's not gonna hurt you. So Nynaeve, you know, brings her cup up to her mouth and, you know." has a small sound of displeasure at the first taste of it. Then she lowers it and her face is smooth. And she's like, oh, just a little bit bitter. Tell me, Mother Gwena, well, we have to put up with this rain and mud much longer. And the other one's like, I'm not a sea folk windfinder. Uh, if I could tell the weather, I'd soon stick live silver pike down my dress and admit it, since the defenders take that sort of thing for next to Aes Sedai work. Now, do you follow the craft or not? You look as you've been traveling. What, what, is, what is good for fatigue? Like she's now starting to challenge naive. But quick note: a sea folk windfinder is one who can. Uh, well, I guess there's there's two ways you could look at it. I'll save the second one for further down in the story when it becomes more relevant. But the first one is basically windfinders just happen to know the weather. They know where the good winds are. The good, you know. The currents, all that kind of stuff, to help basically go faster. That's the common piece of information about what a Sea Folk Windfinder is. Um, the other definition we'll get to at some other point. But when she's asked what is good for fatigue, just like flatwort tea or delay root. Since you ask questions, what would you do to ease birthing? And you can tell this is becoming like a competition. Mother Gwena's like, apply warm towels, child, and perhaps give her a little white fennel if it was an especially hard birth. A woman needs no more than that. And a soothing hand. Can't you think of something better than a country wife's basic knowledge? What do you give for pains in the heart? The killing kind. It's like powdered giandin blossom on the tongue. If a woman has biting pains in her belly and spits up blood, what do you do? And they just kind of like go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's It's not like super exciting... Like, it's not like a battle or anything, but it definitely has kind of an interesting competition slash almost like a rivalry, testing each other's knowledge, you know, that friendly bout that you go back and forth. But eventually, Gwen's getting irritable because that's all she's really good at at this point. Let's be honest. Mother is like, well, if you give him the bone knit, you wrap the broken limb in toweling. Uh, soaked in water and where you've basically boiled blue goat flowers only the blue ones and nonny's like yeah 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 and as hot as he can stand it on the part blue goat flowers to 10 of water no weaker replace the, the towels as soon as they stop steaming and keep it up all day the bone will knit twice as fast as with bone knit alone and twice as strong He's like, oh, I'm gonna remember that. You mentioned using sheepstung root for eye pain. I've never heard. And it's like, eventually we can stop this, right, Miriam? Do you really believe you will ever need to know these things again? You're not a wisdom anymore, or did you forget? And for my, if I was naive, I've been retorted with, Mother Gwena, or Mother Gwena. What do we take for forgetting things? <laughs> a forgetful person. And, uh, that's just me and my snarky attitude. Sorry. But the other woman's like, I didn't forget anything, Egwene. I just remember a time when you were eager to learn things like I was. And Elaine's like, Mother Gwena, what do you do for two women who cannot stop arguing? And Mother Gwena's like, hmm, frowns at the table. She's like, well, usually men or women. I tell them to stay away from each other. That's the best thing and the easiest. Obviously not an option here. And Elaine's like, usually? What if there's a reason they can't stay apart like they're sisters or something? He's like well i do have a way to make it and the argue or stop it's not something i urge anyone to try but some come due to me <laughs> some do come to me sorry DC is rampant today apparently uh and like a bit of a smile in her mouth a little suspicious He's like i charge a silver mark for each woman two for men because men make more fuss there's some will buy anything if it costs enough. And Elaine's like, well, what is the cure? I was like, well, I tell them they have to bring the other one here with them, the one they argue with. Both expect me to quiet the other's tongue. And Egwene's listening, despite obviously kind of being annoyed, but she notices Nynaeve is also paying sharp attention as well. It's like, when they have paid me, and she flexes one of her big arms, I take them out back and stick their heads in the rain barrel till they agree to stop their arguing. And Elaine just starts bursting out laughing. And Nineveh's like, yeah, I might have done something like that myself. In a light voice. And Egwene's expressions hoped not to be like Nynaeve's. And Mother Gones is like, I'd not be surprised if you have. And she's openly grinning now. And it's like, I tell them the next time I hear they've been arguing, I'll do it for free, but I'll use the river. It's remarkable how often the cure works, especially for men. And it's remarkable what it done for my reputation for some reason. None of the people I cure this way ever tells anyone else the details, so someone else comes ask asks for the cure every few months. And if you've been fool enough to eat mudfish, you don't go around telling people. I trust none of you have any wish to spend a silver mark? And Egwene's like, I think not, but glaring at Elaine when Elaine just starts laughing all over again. He's like, good, because those I cure of arguing have a tendency to avoid me, like the sting would caught in their nets, unless they actually take sick, and I am enjoying your company. Most of those who come in my present want to take away bad dreams. Now, I'd like to point out there is a theme with bad dreams as of late, so tuck that away for later. And they grow sour when I have nothing to give them. And then she slips into a frown, rubbing your temples. It's like, well, it's good to see three faces that don't look like there's nothing out there left to jump, except to jump over the side and drown. If you're staying in long in tear, you must come see me again. You know, the girl you called you, Miriam? I am Eilwen. The next time we'll talk over some good sea folk tea instead of something that curls your tongue. It's like, I hate the taste of marsh white. Mudfish basically would be sweeter. But if you have time to stay now, I'll just brew a pot of Tremalking Black, aka coffee. Not long until supper either. Just bread and soup and cheese, but you are welcome. And then he was like, Well, that'd be very nice. Actually, Iowen, um if you have. A spare bedroom i'd like to hire it for the three of us the big woman looks at them without saying anything but then she gets up puts away the marsh white tea fetches a red teapot and a pouch from another one but only after she had brewed a pot of tremulking black and put four clean cups out and a bowl of honeycomb on the table then she talked she's like i've got three empty bedrooms upstairs all my daughters are married my husband the light shine on him was lost in a storm in the fingers of the dragon Fingers of the Dragons, like the Delta, but from the way they're described in various places, it's like it's not just a Delta. They're just like long, huge pillars sticking out of the ground, looking essentially like fingers. And why they call them Fingers of the Dragon, who knows? They don't. They don't know what a dragon even looks like. For crying out loud. So, it's like, oh, he's he's been gone for nearly twenty years. It was when he lost in a storm in the Fingers of the Dragon. I don't have to talk anything about hiring if I decide to let you have the rooms. If, Miriam, she puts honey in her tea. I mean, I guess King black is probably not coffee in that regard. Um, there is coffee in the series. I just usually get them mixed up. And no one typically calls tea black. I'll take my tea black. It's not typically how they talk. So my apologies. I get mixed up occasionally. Um, She's like, well, what will make you decide Was coming from nine and she's like well three young women riding fine horses i don't know much about horses but these look about as fine as what the lord's ladies ride you know you miriam know about as much as the craft that you ought to have hung herbs in your own window already or should be choosing where to do it i've never heard of a woman practicing the craft too far from where she was born but by your tongue this is a very important key point here by your tongue, you're a long way. In other words, you're not tyran from just how you speak. And then she looks over at Elaine. Not many places with the hair that color. In other words, reddish gold hair is not common across the continent. There are just places that are known for it and there are places who are just like, you're never going to see it. And then she's like, by your speech, I'd say Andor. And then he points out that the full men, tyrants, are always talking about finding a yellow haired Andoran girl. Hey The Blondes. <laughs> Andor is known for their blondes. This kind of stacks up onto the uh, uh, I wouldn't say it's an argument, but the case made that Andor is essentially England. It it takes a lot of English attributes in that regard blonde hair, reddish gold hair, like all the all the things you'd expect from like Britain. It, it's commonly an att- an attribute of Andorans. So, you know, what I want to know is why are you here? Are you running away from something or running after something? You don't look like thieves, and I never heard of three women chasing after a man together. Tuck that away for later. So tell me why, and if I like it, the rooms are yours. If you want to pay something, you buy a bit of meat now and then, since meat is a bit dear since trade from Kyrian fell away. But first, the why, Miriam. He's like, well, we're chasing after something, Alan, or rather some people. And Egwene's trying to keep herself still and just sip their tea. Elaine's doing the same thing. And Egwene's like, Alwyn Gwena's dark eyes don't miss very much. But now he was like, well, they stole some things from my mother. (laughs) And they did murder. We are here to seek justice. So, from her mother, aka mother, aka Swan Sancha, aka the Omerlin seat, who is referred to as mother by all I said I. Yeah. Snazzy. Large woman's like, burn my soul. Have you no menfolk? In other words, like, why are you doing this? <laughs> it's abnormal for women to go chasing around after thieves. And then she kind of follows up with that with like, men are not good for much beyond heavy hauling and getting in the way. Most of the time. And kissing and such. And such. <laughs> but if there's a battle to be fought or a thief to catch, I say let them do it. Andor is a civilized here. You are not Iel. In other words, an Iel like you got the the maidens of the spear, spear sisters, whatever you want to call them. Um, they're they. It's kind of more of an egalitarian war base in the clans. Obviously, there's more men than there are maidens, but there's still a large amount of maidens, and they can do just the hunting now just as much as anybody else. So it's it's the irony. And he's like, well, there's no one else but us. Those who might have come to her places were killed. And Egwene's like, oh, the three murdered Aes Sedai. They could not have been Black Aja, but if they had not been killed, the Amlin would not have been able to trust them. She's trying to keep to the bloody three L's, but she is skirting it close. And I'm like, that's literally what Aes Sedai do. Like, literally, that is what Aes Sedai do. They skirt the truth as much as possible for their own means and their own reasons what is wrong with this? I mean, besides that, it's obviously annoying to everyone who doesn't like that. But if you're literally trying to be the person who does that, then obviously learning how to do it well is at least the least you can do. And he's like, well, you know, this is, how, this is what happened essentially, and it's we're in a bad spot. So Alwyn's like, ah, they killed your men, brothers or husbands or fathers. But Nineveh has spots of color blooming in her cheeks, but Alwyn kind of mistakes it for emotion or emotion of the loss kind of thing, like distraught grief. He's like, oh, don't tell me. I'll not pull up old grief. Let it lie on the bottom till it melts away. There, there, calm yourself. But Egwene's trying not to growl disgust because Egwene just can't handle anything, apparently. And then he was like, well, I got to tell you this. Voice stiff, red coloring still in her hair. These murderers and thieves are dark friends. They are women, but they are as dangerous as any swordsman, Alwyn. If you wondered why we did not seek the end, that is why. They may know we follow, and they may be watching for us. So Alwyn waves it away with a sniff. Yeah, whatever. Of the four most dangerous folk I know, two are women who never carry as much as a knife, and only one of them, of the men, is a swordsman. As for dark friends, Miriam, when you are as old as I, you learn that false dragons are dangerous, lionfish are dangerous, sharks are dangerous, and sudden storms out of the south. But dark friends are fools. Filthy fools, but fools. Dark one is locked up where the creator put him, and no fetches or fangfish to scare the children will get him out. Fools don't frighten me unless they're working the boat I'm riding. I suppose you don't have any proof you could take the defenders of the stone. It would just be your word against theirs. And a great's like, what's a fetch? A fetch is a Merdral. an eyeless, whatever you want to call them. Like, There's a million names you can come with them. Fetches are just what they call them down south because it's like the fairy tale version of them. Now, fangfish, I'm not particularly sure what exactly it is. I'm just assuming it's a fangfish. It's extremely dangerous, probably like a piranha. Um, Anything like that, it's not going to get the dark one out. That's kind of the, the whole point. And then he was like, we'll have the proof when we find them. They have the things that we stole and we can describe them. They are old things and of little value to anyone but us and our friends. Alan's like, well, you'd be surprised what old things could be worth. Old Luis Mulan pulled up three heartstone bulls and a cup in his nets last year. Down on the fingers of the dragon. Now, instead of fishing smack, he owns a ship trading up at the river. Old fool did not even know what he had until I told him. Very likely there's more where those came from, but Luis couldn't remember the last spot that it was at, and I don't know how he ever managed to get a fish in his net. Half the fishing boats in tear were down there for months afterwards, dragging for Quendiar, not grunts or flatfish. And some lords had the saying where to pull the nets. That's what old things could be worth if they're old enough. So I've decided you need a man in this, and I know just the one. Now Heartstone, as we know from previous bits and pieces, uh, Heartstone is Quendiar. In other words, it's the hardest material known to mankind at this point. In other words, it's unbreakable except when it does break like in the case of the seals. All the seals of the Dark One's prison are Quendiar. But then he was like, who? I mean, if you mean a lord or like one of the high lords, we don't have any proof until we, you know, to offer until we actually find these people. And Alan's like, Psh, yeah, girl, nobody from the mall. M-A-U-L-E. A.K.A. just like it's like the four gate, I would assume it's like the lower class people. I mean, the four gate's like even lower than the lower class. It's people outside of the walls kind of thing. But he's like, no one in the mall knows a high lord or any kind of lord. Mudfish don't school with the Silver Sides. In other words, the peasants don't mingle with the nobility. He's like, I'll bring you the dangerous man who I know isn't a swordsman, but is the more dangerous of the two at that. Julian Sandar is a thief catcher. Now, there's a little little note if you haven't caught it yet for the newbies. A thief catcher is not what Elaine had mentioned. She mentioned a thief-taker. But they're essentially the same thing. They're just called different things in different places. But they can be really stickly about what you call them. If you call a thief-catcher a thief-taker, they take offense. If you call a thief-taker a thief-catcher, they can take offense too. It's just... It's really weird stuff. But he's like, hey, Julian Sanders the thief-catcher, and he's the best of them. I don't know how it is in Andor, but a thief-catcher will work for you or me as soon as for a lord or a merchant, and charge less than that. Julian can find these women for you if they can be found, and bring you your stuff back before you even have to go anywhere near the Dark Friends. And if like, okay, well, she's not really sure, but okay. So Alwyn ties his platforms to her shoes, clogs, she calls them, and hurries out. Egwene watches her go through one of the kitchen windows past the horses and around the cover of the alley. It's like and this is this is the ironic part and this is where Elaine earns her golden star. It's like the only one she gets the entire series for me personally, but she's like, "Well, you are learning how to be Isidai, Miriam. She turns to the window. "You manipulate people as well as Moraine." Which makes Nanyu's face go white. And Elaine walks across the floor and just slops Egwene's face. And we're like, yes, about time. <laughs> but Egwene's so shocked, she can really only just stare. But And here's the, here's the weird part. It refers to Elaine as the golden-haired woman. Which is weird, because her hair is reddish gold. So it's gold hair, but it's red. And it's red, but it's also gold so you'll see sometimes where they say the red-headed the red-haired woman or the gold-haired woman which he actually has reddish gold hair so it's like a strawberry honey look um it's the mixture and it throws people off but the ultimate consensus from everyone who's ever read Robert jordan is that it's reddish gold hair it's just in certain circumstances like if you have a dirty blonde Dirty Blonde has kind of like a brownish blonde hair. And that brownish blonde looks more blonde after it's recently cleaned. And the sun's hitting it a certain angle. Now, there's no sun in this situation. Because it's rainy and all that stuff outside. But this is just how he decided to pick it. Don't ask me why. I don't know. But the golden haired woman is Elaine, even though it's the reddish gold hair. She's like, you go too far, way too far. We got to live together and we'll surely, or if we don't live together, we're going to die together. Did you give Alwyn your true name? None of you have told her what we could, that we seek dark friends, what we risk linking us with the dark friends. She told us they were dangerous murderers. Would you have had her say they are Black Aja in tear? Would you risk everything on whether Alwyn would keep that to herself? Now, at this point, I'm thinking she's making a lot of good points, which is rare. But Egwene should know that the other option that would be worse but would fit the truth speaking, if you would, of um, not lying or bending the three-o's or whatever would be uh, Elaine basically saying, I'm the Daughter heir. take me to your leaders in the stone and then go find these women and take them down. Like, that would be ridiculous and Egwene knows it. Because of the explanation that Elaine gave prior to this. And she's just like, don't, don't do this to our friends because we need each other. Otherwise we're going to die. And Egwene's like, oh, sheesh, Elaine has a strong arm. It's like, well, I don't have to like doing it. I'm like, you want to be Aes Sedai. It's part of your training. It's part of your identity. You're going to do it whether you like it or not. And Elaine's like, you know, I I know. I know. I don't like this either, but we have to. And I'm like, you want to be I said I too, Elaine. Come on. <laughs> like, don't ruin the goodwill you just got. So Egwene turns back to look out the window at the horses. Like, well, I know we don't, but I don't have to like it. I don't have to like it. And it's like, you don't have to like it, but you're going to have to probably eventually like it because it's what you're going to end up doing in the long run. And that's the end of the chapter. That was a bit longer than previous ones we've had. But I am excited about the next chapter. Hopefully you guys are as well, because it's a half and half. We get two different p- point of views, and I am looking forward to it. So, thanks everybody for hanging out. If you'd like to reach out and you know, ask questions, make a comment on something, add your own little input. Feel free to reach out to me on Facebook, Tales of Red Arm, or on Twitter, at Tales of a Red Arm. Or, if you want to email me directly, you can, Tales of Red Arm at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Also, I need to start doing it more often, but I need to push the Discord. If you, if you one, know what Discord is, two would like to use it or know what it is and would like to join in to just chat I'm there a lot more frequently and I will be a lot more active in talking there when I'm not releasing a podcast just due to the fact that I use discord pretty much on a daily basis so um if you would like the link to the discord server just get a hold of me either through the direct email, which is probably the easiest way to do it. And I'll send it to you. Otherwise you can check Twitter and the Facebook page. They should have the links there, but you know, site websites, they're iffy at best on the good days. So that's, uh, how you can reach me in that regard. So, uh, I'd love to hear from you guys. And even if you don't have many things positive to say, it's still nice to hear from you guys. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed Chapter 48, and I look forward to sharing Chapter 49 with you, and we'll go with that one next time. So, we'll see you around. Until then. We drink all night and dance all day, and on the girls will spend our pay. And when we're done, then we'll await the dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and some the girls, be they shot or so, then follow young Matt wherever he calls, To dance with Jack of the Shadows. We will toss the, down the, the down d- dice however they fall, and some the gutsby they shot or so, then follow Lord no Matt wherever he calls, To dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll, we'll give, give a, a year with a bloody curse, curse. And hog the maids it could be worse We'll, we'll right away with the dark ones we'll we'll first To we'll we'll dance, dance. with we'll Jack we'll of the Shadows yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.